Hey, it's Tia Carrere, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. Record. It's already recorded. recorded. I'm going to okay. double check it. Get us dude. swearing out the way. I, I'm, I'm bollocks, crackers. <laughs> crackers. Imagine. Oh, what are, are those cheese crackers? No, they're bollocks uh, flavored crackers, actually. Crackers. <laughs> crackers that are bollocks, so that, as in they crumble when you put bill on. <laughs> or, or, or crackers that actually taste of bollocks. It's hard to say sometimes. <laughs> Either way, um, salted crackers. Bollocks flavor crackers. If you're a dog of wine tasting, people say, "Oh, I'm getting tobacco. I'm getting, I'm getting hot, hot concrete. I'm getting battered." And then if someone else just had a like, big swig and went, "Oh, I'm getting, I don't know what you're drinking, but I'm, I'm getting bollocks. I'm getting gravel. I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting someone rubbing the bollocks and gravel from this one. <laughs> this, tur- this Turkish Pinot Grigio. Um, I was a little bit late to this episode because one of my fire alarms is just randomly going off. Which is both slightly disturbing, but also intensely annoying. So of course, because of course you need to go and check it out in case there is literally a fire engulfing your house. But at the same time, I know there isn't. <laughs> and every time I go there, nothing, there's nothing to resolve. So I just have to like wait for it to go off. Uh, of course, it's one of these ones which is installed by the fire service, so you cannot remove it or remove the battery. So I'm not actually sure what to do. Here. I'm not an electrician, um, and I've got a really poor memory. But wh- which is the loudest noise, loudest, most irritating, repetitive noise? Is it is it a fire alarm going off intermittently for no reason because of faulty wiring, mm-hmm. or or is it a mouse whispering its children to sleep, <laughs> or is it the gentle sound of Enya lulling you to sleep? Um, I think it may be the former. Um, so yeah, so if it suddenly an alarm goes off. Don't be alarmed. Just be really irritated. Okay. That's good to know. It's good to the listeners to know there might be a fire alarm hurtling towards them out of the speakers at any moment. That'll that'll set the tone for a nice <laughs> for a nice movie podcast. This is KK seventy six, Kino Kingdom seventy six. Hot on the mic, Rupert and Britt. Um so yes, KK seventy six. I know we discussed last time last episode oh i made a throwaway comment about how we should consider the worst films ever made uh turned out to be trickier than i thought (laughs) you'd think the amount of twaddle that we've seen it'd be pretty straightforward but it isn't that straightforward and uh but i think it's i'd like to frame it as something where we can learn a little bit from these movies they're not necessarily the worst films ever made but I have selected a list of films that represent something awful, shall we say, uh, an awful tendency in Hollywood and beyond. So that's the way I'd like to frame it. But we'll we'll leave that until slightly later in the episode. Um, so what do we start with today? What do we begin with? Because we've got so much micro content to make up this episode. Yeah, I, just as you were talking, then I was um, I wasn't listening. I took my headphones off, so I don't know. <laughs> I, I was listening, and I typed in the worst films ever made, and I've just got I just sort of you know just in Google worst films ever made mm-hmm. just to see what comes up. So that, I'm just going to keep that for later on. But um, yeah, 
It's yeah, an absolute minefield. This whole thing is a it's a real moral quandary. But yeah, anyway, I'm we'll looking at this. Yeah, I, I won't go into it now. But yeah, just looking mm-hmm. at this list, it's just it's just like untrue. Um, <laughs> it's just <laughs> not really not untrue. correct. Um, well, yeah, so we've got a few little little bits of content. Um, I mean, it was it's quite nice actually because I'm just you know we're now at the final quarter towards our hundredth episode, and we'll have to do something special for that. We did have a request actually moments ago from one of our regulars, Utah Smith, who said you should do a live episode, which would be quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Live live episode with just an open. We should we've got a Twitter account that I'm going to send out soon, so people can just send stuff in and we'll watch it or discuss it or whatever. Just do it completely live. That could be quite funny. Um, but although saying that we've got a lot yes. of the listeners in america and they'd be there at like four in the morning thinking oh for god's sake talk <laughs> about lucy lou um <laughs> oh lucy um, um so yeah the, the, oh go on sorry my alarm's going off can you hear it Hang on. yeah yeah oh, oh no is is a beep twice it's such a late is it like too tired to tell you that you're going to die i've closed as many doors between me and it so it could just be a faint plaintive whisper for all for like which is difficult because you live in a wendy house in someone's garden so <laughs> yes, <we're done>. um <laughs> yes so uh yes where were we anyway before we start talking about faulty alarms uh, um we were hang on with it just putting down a little note um yeah we well we've got a few things what, what i was going to say yeah. was um just thinking that over this sort of 75 episodes we've done so far, yes. we've gone from various little skits and changes through the sponsorships and songs and things and introductions. And I just wanted to sort of thank everyone for listening. But I, I just like how there's some with the Arkansas, which is a, a regular feature. And, and now I've got a couple more that are creeping up with the, the movie rhyming Stephen Lang Corner. And <clears throat> I don't know how long this is going to last. I hope forever. I hope it lasts longer than this podcast. But um, just want to start off each episode from now on as long as they're available with a joke so this is a regular listener max's movie mirth um and his joke of the week is what do you call a director who hasn't got a computer network in his studio building christopher nolan christopher nolan no lan yeah as in local area network yeah you can't. It wouldn't work if you know blah 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 studio building Christopher Nolan. So you have to you have to mispronounce because if you sent to someone they'd say what? Yeah. Um, so if you actually said his name as it is pronounced, then uh, it wouldn't work. Nolan. Nolan. Did you laugh? I don't. I know you have a trouble with the microphone. It sounded like a to the deathly unveiling silence. Oh, I was I was on mute. I didn't realize. Oh, you were laughing so hard. Yeah, I had to put it on mute, otherwise it would spoil. Everything. It reminds me. It like reminds a joke. Me, one of the first jokes I ever read as a kid, I had a big bumper book of monster jokes, and the first mm-hmm. joke in it was, um, where do monsters live? Murray. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, I've never understood the joke. What's it so saying? Where? Where do monsters live? Murray. I don't, I don't get that. No, I never have. For 36 years, I've wrestled with that wandering. I, I, I thought at some point in my 20s, after 15 years of sort of wrestling with it, mind, I thought, is it, is it, was it, they mean to say bury? Like monsters live, is because, you know, like bury, you bury someone? I don't know, but either way. Well, monsters are, I mean, dinosaurs, maybe you could say that because they were kind of buried and you've discovered their fossils, but monsters, they're not real, so they don't want to be buried, are they? 
and also mispronounced there's something there's something about accentuating like christopher nolan so the yeah. joke comes across a brilliant joke max thanks for that um Excellent. but then just just mispronouncing a word like from saying bury to bury like mm. people would say well bury isn't the place is it b-u-r-y this is yeah so um so well i mean regardless of how you pronounce it it doesn't make sense anyway that's that's the real problem that, there, isn't that, it? that's the surreal take unless we have to wait another 36 years to work it out you know answers yeah. on a postcard or just to our email address really which <laughs> is the men who talk at gmail.com that is um, how you get housekeeping into the episode in a seamless way <laughs> I ask your co-host what our email address is. So I would I would give it another sort of ten minute gap of silence just for the audience to calm down after that joke. But we've got to we've got to roll on. We've got to steamroll on. We've got to steamroll on to the next section of the podcast, the movie rhyming Stephen Lang Corner. And the first one is one I have to read out, and the second one is some audio I have to play. Okay. So I'll read this one out, and this is from our. Uh, lover and occasional co-host laszlo buckets okay i was having a james nesbitt in the lucy lou the other day when i realized there was no yui bowl left to wipe my poor green grass so i called the missus on the emma stone to ask her to bring me some demi Moore. but it turned out she was having a kate winslet in the downstairs florence pew and had run out of Corey stole too with no other choice we both agreed to use our julian sands to wisely snipe our jeff goldblums instead and vowed to never speak of it again it's so, hard to, it's so hard to read those out because sometimes I'm doing it and I'm thinking don't laugh and I can hear you going <laughs> or even, and, and, and it's somehow even worse when I can see you've gone on mute it, it, it seems to make it worse because I know that you're chortling um, so thank you thank you Laszlo for that I, I have no that idea who Corey Stoll is and uh, <laughs> Kate Winslet, I, I like the rhyming slime Kate Winslet I've never heard someone say oh that Carrie I'm going to have to have a Kate Winslet <laughs> <laughs> yeah really really pushing pushing the definition of rhyming some of these uh, it does tickle me as well that you know um i remember there was a conversation with james blunt and they said oh you know you know what your surname is cockney rhyming slang for and he sort of he's really amiable guy you know took the joke but i just think that if you went up to kate winslet and said <laughs> when i'm pushing feces out of my body i refer to it as you <laughs> she probably she probably wouldn't ha ha ha, ha. No, she probably wouldn't take oh, oh. very good humor no, neither would a husband and security detail but um so yeah thank you Lazla, for one that's quite actually toilet humor and yeah, any more movie rhyming lang stevens uh any movie rhyming stephen langs send it to us at the men who talk at gmail.com is it gmail.com or is it outlook.com oh god if I just say this wrong all the time, people are just randomly. Let me just double check this. I'm sure I swear it's it Gmail. I know. Hang on. It, oh, I have no way of finding out. It's Gmail. I'm going to say it's Gmail. But no, is it? Let me find oh, out. No. Can you find out? I don't know. I'm not really sure <laughs> what I'm doing here, but. Okay. <clears throat> so look. Oh, this is so unprofessional. I do apologize. I, no, I'm just I, I can't tell either. Oh no! It's the men who. Sorry, it's the men who talk at outlook.com. It is outlook.com. Okay. Yeah, the men not who talk Gmail. at outlook.com, not Gmail. Don't send the Gmail. Some some tossers will get that. Exactly. Um, so, and the other one, the other movie rhyming Stephen Lang um, is one from uh, the person who sort of created this. Really, this is Utah Smith. 
Hello, it's Christopher. Welcome to my Jimmy Carr, which is a classic Harrison Ford Michael Sierra, which has Tom Cruise control and is a lovely shade of Tom Green. I underheard a Kurt Russell in the Kate Bushes and the Mr. T's. I was immediately on my Alexander Skarsgård. Thought it's Chris Hemsworth. I think it was just a Megan Fox, but couldn't be uh, poorly sure because I'd lost my Michael Douglases. Anyway, uh, I was only going to Christopher McDonald's to get a happy Emil Hirsch, uh, but they Billy Blank refused because uh, I wasn't nearly young enough and Danny DeVito the whole thing. I shall be Sean penning a very Howard Stern Rick email to that clown. Mini driving Ian Holmes, I uh, John Cena, a Tina Turner off for Udo Kia, and totally recalled they Matt Baker to the George Best James Cameron and Frank Grillo to pretty decent Whoopi Goldberger. I needed some new day cookware and Billy Crystal wine Kirk Douglases anyway. And Johnny Depp to Jeffrey Rush there, but around the Diane Lane was a transit Casper Van Dean. I turned hard Robin Wright into a Sally Field and into a Ricky Lake. Luckily, I'm a good David Schwimmer and Christian bailed out. Got to the Elizabeth Banks, but I'd ripped torn my Gene Wilders and lost to my Robert De Niro. And in the Donald Glove box was my past Michael Rappenpaw. I hitched to an owner rider with a passing James Vander Bleak. My lips were Betty Blue. The Adam Driver turned on the hot Dakota fanning because I was so, so stone cold Steve Austin. And he gave me some Danny Glovers, a Billy Blankset and fresh Al Pacino's. He was Jim carrying Mel Gibson guitars and was Lena heading for his John Holmes, which coincidentally was in the same Stuart Townsend as mine. I got in, had some hot K.E. cocoa and a well-deserved Harry Redknapp. <laughs> Bloody hell. The damn was... glove box. <laughs> not even a... <laughs> was not even his name. Brilliant. <laughs> With a Danny <laughs> I, I couldn't even there was one part though where there were so many coming I I, it's just a list at one point but amazingly intricate quite beautiful and poetic in its own way hmm. <sighs> one, did he have a Kate Winslet <laughs> ah, brilliant uh, yeah, so thank you very much for that, um, Utah and Laszlo. That's rapidly becoming one of my favourite segments. It's just so preposterous, <laughs> just keeping up with what's happening. Um, so yeah, we'll have the Arkansas, uh, which was who is it? This at the end of the episode, and that was Michael Rappaport. Oh, just mentioned in that actually to uh, Adam Driver. Also mentioned heard... in that. <clears throat> oh really? Of course, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's time to go on to the meat and potatoes of the podcast, the movies. <laughs> Um, uh, because this is effectively us discussing well yeah discussing the worst films ever made and what Mm -hmm. makes them so um i've only got two movies uh one of which you've seen before oh so shall i I just do my two and then hand it over to you oh well i've got two movies as well um and one one of mine is oppenheimer so um It'd be, two, I'd like two minute trashing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, and then we're going on to. Have you, um, in terms of the worst films ever made, have you got some ideas about any that you'd have on your list, or you you handing this over to me? Yeah, I, I've seen House of VHS. You know that. So, yeah, I've got that. There's that, and then there's Nemesis Four, Death Angel. No, um, no, I'm I'm was to be honest, I was I'm happy for you to lead this because. I was more interested in the conversation about what makes it the worst as opposed to compiling a list. I know, I know. Well, that is where the real interest lies. Anyway, oh, let me let me just talk about Oppenheimer quickly then, because I feel yes, that's yes, very much a movie of the moment. Um, okay. 
with this slightly tedious but possibly quite necessary Barbenheimer marketing thing going on. Mm. Uh, so, yes, Oppenheimer is a film, Christopher Nolan's latest film, uh, which is currently out, uh, available in IMAX. I say IMAX, but is it really IMAX? Or is it just a massive screen? Because they're not really IMAX. There's very few actual IMAX cinemas in the country. Um, but anyway, this is, um, yeah, Christopher Nolan. He's, I, to me, this is his best film since Interstellar. Possibly his best film ever, maybe. It's quite atypical, this one, of Christopher Nolan, but also has some of the stylistic tendencies of his other films, which we'll get to. It is based on... I don't want to say the life, but really the career of Robert J. Oppenheimer, who's the father of the atomic bomb. Uh, and it has three intercutting acts uh, across like a 10, 20 year period. Um, so basically it's got Oppenheimer's route into being recruited to work on the bomb. Then it's got a section which is actually the work that gets done in the desert, the research and the development of the bomb um obviously it during the war and then the, there's a period afterwards in the 50s when <clears throat> a gentleman called lewis strauss of the atomic energy commission played here by robert downey jr uh attempts to destroy oppenheimer and his legacy by setting up a kangaroo court to prove that oppenheimer is a disloyal communist basically oppenheimer obviously being played by killian murphy um in probably gonna what's gonna be quite a defining role for him i would say it's uh it's a it's three hours long it's extremely talky it's very much a men smoking in rooms film uh i think i'm going to question whether imax is the best way to see this or not because in terms of like it being a cinematic spectacle it's very there's a lot of very tight close-ups very intimate tight close-ups extreme focus on people's faces and very blurred backgrounds and stuff so i don't know i found it almost too like it, i found that maybe i wanted the screen to be a little bit smaller it's a little bit full-on but it's got amazing editing and sound design sound design is just that that's really the cinematic element of of this film is the sound because the sound wait there the sound is good in a nolan film i know right uh, which is incredible because you can actually hear what the characters are saying most of the time. <laughs> Bloody hell, most of the time. Most well, of the I mean, time. Let's face it, he must have taken on board the criticism of Tenet because that was just ridiculous. Like, you need, literally need a subtitle to that film. But in this, the it's more like the uh, the atmospheric sound design, which is impressive. Like, obviously, it's got all of these kind of, like, kind of like, was tectonic rumbling sounds uh to build tension but also to kind of represent the kind of the shifting of well humanity's techno tectonic plates i suppose because of the kind of gravity of this situation that's happening of this invention and um and it's got this uh kind of running theme of stomping feet uh is a kind of it's sort of a way of um applauding it turns out it's a way of applauding um uh, oppenheimer after the after the bomb is made and 
it's a sort of slightly aggressive, slightly militaristic way of applauding him, which is quite disturbing. It's quite like a nightmarish sequence, actually, that um, when you realise what why this, all this stomping feet sounds are happening, is that it's almost like a horror sequence where he's suddenly coming to terms with what's what he's done sort of thing. Anyway, what's interesting about the narrative um, in this film, obviously I mentioned that there's this whole thing about Lewis Strauss, this atomic energy guy trying to take him down basically and like basically link him to communists. And what's interesting is that the all the intrigues around the politics is actually ultimately irrelevant. And that's sort of the point of the movie is that is that they're focusing so much on the political dimension of this individual that actually the whole like question of whether any of this should have been done in the first place is almost pushed aside. They have a whole commission about like, you know, is he, is he guilty or not? Is he, is he a communist or not? It's like, no one's asking the actual questions. The the real, the commission should have been about, was this the right thing to do to build an atomic bomb that was going to kill a hundred thousand people or whatever. But I, I think that's where it's become sort of relevant to our own time, I suppose, is that, this idea that we're kind of focusing on the wrong stuff because you know even with life and death problems say you know climate change or something like that as soon as it becomes politicized it becomes like a partisan issue and then the goal becomes not it becomes to the goal becomes to discredit the opponent rather than argue the validity of the arguments if you see what i mean so this is really this film is really a condemnation of partisan politics i suppose and there's other stuff in the script that doesn't seem immediately relevant, but is actually quite clever. For example, there's like it's a sequence with like a character's suicide, and I th- I thought, is this what's this got to do with you know the bigger picture? But what it's about is like it's about indirect guilt. It's a metaphor for responsibility. Like if if say with Oppenheim, if you don't pull the trigger yourself but your actions have enabled the destruction of someone else, then are you still culpable for that? So it's all, it's full of all sorts of those sorts of moral dilemmas and they're all overlapping. They all add up to a kind of cacophony of interlocking concurrent scenes towards the end. And that's where the, the Nolan editing style comes into effect where you have like, it all ramps up and it becomes very intense and it's jumping between time periods uh, and getting very intense. And it works in this context doesn't always work i look at you the dark knight rises but it does work here and yeah and in terms of like the film's scope and detail and complexity it really reminded me of jfk the oliver stone film slightly less conspiratorial i'd say but it's got the same almost incomprehensibly complicated script with loads of references and acronyms and names flying around. And of course the underlying fear of communism, which is all part of the JFK thing as well. But, but just like that film, it's like, you're never really completely grasping everything that's going on. Cause it's so quick. Like the dialogue so quick, all the information's coming at you so quick, but it's well edited enough that you still understand what's at stake and why it's dramatic and what, what this what is happening to whom by whom so still works and i think um what nolan is ultimately trying to say with this is that there are some things that are too important to reduce to the relatively petty political level and you know you take your eye off the ball your peril i suppose 
which is essentially what happened as the nuclear arms race ramped up to like the Bay of Pigs in what early 60s or whatever. Now we've got a madman in Russia who's got his hands on a bunch of nukes, so because to show um, not somebody to be messed about with. I liked it a lot, this film, even though I felt like it kind of bleached my soul a little bit, but it's really good. I enjoyed it. I'd watch it again. It what to your soul, sorry? It kind of bleached my soul a little bit. Bloody hell. Because yeah. it is quite it's heavy. It does, yeah. It's quite... It's quite bleak in a way, obviously, because it's about I, the atomic bomb. <clears throat> I, I, this is one of those films that <clears throat> I'm not sure if I'll ever get around to watching, so I'm not sure if I'll ever be in the sort of right frame of mind for it. Mm. Um, it I'm intrigued. I'll, this is a film that I'll be sort of intrigued to hear everyone else's thoughts on, because I think I would just, I think I'd find it a bit too overbearing to sort of sit through myself. Yeah, and I think, I think Nolan's the right person for a film like this because. He's not really, for all his storytelling faults, he's not. He's never been a, like a sentimentalist, so it doesn't follow. It doesn't feel like your regular biopic. It doesn't feel like because a, a worse writer director would probably turn it into a love story type thing. I mean, there is a love love interest. There's multiple love interests actually because it's a bit of a womanizer, but. Um, like a lesser writer director would kind of possibly scrub out the less savory aspects of Oppenheimer's um, triumphs, shall we say, in the um, in the world of women, but and focus on his long-suffering wife, but and make it into a romance. But he doesn't really do that, and actually, mm. she's quite a tough character herself, <laughs> and, and is very unsentimental herself, and very very kind of forceful with him it's not a soft and fuzzy relationship by any means so yeah i think he's the right person for it he's got a certain coldness which really works here a coldness and gravitas that works in a story like this yeah and, and killing murphy has that kind of face for that doesn't he yeah for he's that haunted. Of... i mean he's such a good performance and, and like so much of it as i said like so much of this film is not about the big vistas and I mean, the actual bomb scene is pretty impressive, considering zero CGI. It is very impressive. Um, and it's told mostly through sound and kind of quite abstract imagery, to be honest. But, yeah, most of the film is close-ups to Killian Murphy, to be honest, and, like, telling the story with his eyes, because he's not really a very outwardly expressive character. So it's all about the eyes. And, that. and I think he really rose to the challenge here, because... He's never really had a role of this scale before, I wouldn't say. Do, do the story that his eyes tell, does it sort of um, oscillate between, all oh, right, <laughs> and whoopsie-daisy. <laughs> yeah. I can almost see him singing whoopsie-daisy to himself gently. You just see his <laughs> lips move. Whoopsie-daisy. Oh, <laughs> slightly out of tune as well. Is change the course of history for the worse. <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. is brilliant in this, and I'm just so glad to see him not being Iron Man or something. I just I was nice going to say, what different. kind of is is he? What sort of performance is it? He's it's like a really he's he's much more like he's much more kind of expressive with his emotions. He's just so angry all the time, and. 
I love how his kind of character <clears throat> arc resolves. Uh, it's very nicely done. Loads of famous people in this. Every scene, it's like someone else rocks up. Like, there was one scene, I watched it with my brother, and I was like, oh, I liked that scene. The one scene with Gary Oldman. He was like, Wait, hang on, which character did Gary Oldman play? It's like, <laughs> well, you'll have to... <laughs> You'll have to look beneath the makeup because he is a Gary Oldman's in one scene. And he, of course, he's brilliant in that one scene. But uh, it's just a good, it's a well-written movie and, and everyone's at the top of the game. It, it sounds like it plays to Nolan's strengths of treating movies as, as puzzle pieces that need to sort of intersect with each other. And, yes, and, and, to an extent. But I think that's only represented here by the editing in a way because he can't. Obviously, you can't get away with being too tricksy about it because it's just a story. It's a true story, so you can't really. So all it is is he's shuffling the pieces around. So it's like it's like the jigsaw has already been built, and he's just shuffled the pieces around, uh, and you kind of put them together. But I think he does it well. I think he chooses. He chooses the right kind of shuffling. Choosing the right kind of shuffling. And actually, it's amazing, remarkably lacking in weirdly like just pure exposition you'd think a film like this would be all exposition because it's trying to tell true story but actually there's a lot of subtlety in the script about there's a brilliant scene where um uh, oppenheimer first meets this general played by matt damon uh this general who basically wants is interested in recruiting him and they're almost testing each other out in a kind of war of words and it's such a good scene it's all like they're just going back and forth with these absolute zingers just little takedowns and it kind of like tells its own story it's like on on one hand it's a battle but on the other hand it's like okay he's actually proving himself to be up to the task sort of thing because he's got some fight in him it's just a really cool scene and it's all done in a very subtextual way uh so yeah good script you are you are what was the feeling you were when when the credits were rolling what was the the feeling you were sort of left with in that moment <clears throat> probably exhaustion to be honest because it's so like there's so much information well, that's because you've watched films when you're on a bouncy castle <laughs> <laughs> but actually no this is the thing like the film does deserve to be seen at the cinema i know i was saying i'm not sure about like imax is like so full on but it does deserve to be seen in the cinema Partly because, like, one of the issues my brother had with it was, like, just... And a, and a few critics have had this issue, is that it tries to pack in so much into three hours. And you can see how it could work as, like, a miniseries. But I don't know. I, I like the fact that you you sat there in a cinema. There's no distractions. You haven't got a phone, uh, you know, or, you know, there's no... You can't pause it or anything. You're just locked in and you have to focus on the screen and what's going on. And it really does lock you into this very intense uh, kind of, it, it rises to this crescendo towards the end. And, uh, and you do feel very much locked in afterwards. You feel like you've been, well, through the ringer, should we say. So. Is, is it a little bit in the way you can't sort of take your eyes off the screen, sort of like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy in terms yeah. of the, the dialogue where you can yeah i think yeah there is a bit of that like you know when it's just high quality everything's so high quality and it's like you feel like there's control here not just like in terms of the direction in terms of the editing to the performances like because like i said everyone's at the top of their game so you don't really want to miss anything uh partly because you wouldn't know what the hell's going on if you did i felt sorry for some people going for a pee in the middle of like a you know 
you know, an intense interview scene. I'm thinking, wow, you've missed, you've missed some dialogue here. Yeah. If, um, yeah, I think you, you kind of selling it to me, to be honest, it, it is, it, I, mean, I do like Killian Murphy and Matt Damon's a keeper. And I did notice that Josh Hartner and Casey. Yeah, Affleck that was weird. That was so weird. Like I did not recognize Josh Hartner for ages. He's turned into, I thought, Oh, there's a, it's quite this handsome man who looks a bit like um, I thought. I thought it's Carl Chandler at first, but I thought no, because he's too young. And then, um, but then I realised, yeah, later on, I thought he's Josh Hartnett, and he's really good in this. So maybe he's gonna, you know, he's got a chance of, you know, a career resurgence and uh, possibly a place in the bar later on. Let's see. What about um, his hair in this film? Is it troublesome? Was well, it? No, I mean it's just standard like. 50s kind of side part or maybe even a center party i'm not sure but yeah he hasn't like got a bowl cut brushed it forward but left a bit spiky at the back like so, as if he just got up off his pillow and got out of yeah. bed yeah oh, that's, that's, that's my main concern it's <laughs> nothing like that don't worry and i'm also just it's, it's even um it's even more impressive really that this film has got such good sound design considering casey affleck is in it probably speaking <laughs> yeah it's, <laughs> does he yeah, does he plays like a really rousing orator, sort of, sort of giving rousing speeches in universities? He's absolutely bellowing them out. No, he's actually <laughs> just quite a, a soft-spoken, quite mean-spirited general. Would, would you would you describe his delivery as uh, I don't know, like sort of somewhat mumbly, somewhat muted? Yeah. <laughs> so everyone uh, has like one scene in this everyone except Kate Murphy basically has one scene in this movie that's how it works Rami Malek rocks up crucial scene but brilliant good yeah I, I'm, I can I can imagine maybe at one point if I've got like a day off and yeah. I'll, I'll get sort of swept into this just to have a sort of counterpoint and just say it's boring and shit <laughs> yeah, just to get that <laughs> crucial second opinion boring shit I watched I watched half hour bored Oh, speaking of watching half hour things, um, which leads on to one of my. Well, actually, uh, are you are you okay for me to move on? From, Absolutely. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, yeah I, you just reminded me that I'm going to talk about the Flash in a minute after this one because this is a this is a TMT because I'm going to talk about a film you've seen. But my mm-hmm. parents um, over lockdown they watched every Marvel film, and then after that they watched every Bond film. So they've got. I would say a high yeah. tolerance for certain things. Um, they apparently watched Black Adam a few days ago, and after half an hour, they just t- gave up and turned it off. Jeez. And I saw my my brother told me this, and I saw my dad earlier on um, today. And I said, "You turned off Black Adam after half an hour." And he said, "What?" And I said, "You turned off Black Adam after half an hour." And he frowned and said, "I turned off Black Adder." And I said, "No." Well, you would turn off after half hour because the episode was finished. The episode. Um, but he, it's a Black Adam, and he said, "Oh yeah, watched it until the Rock turned up." And his words were, "Until the Rock turned up." He he started flying around, and I thought, "Ah, it's one of those sorts of films," and turned it off. <laughs> so yeah, there was half hour. They, they gave up. Um, what did before- they? Pulling <laughs> the Rock turned up. I love that. And they love they love the rock as my dad's a huge yeah. wrestling fan and my mother loves the rock but yeah. i think they just got the vibe that like i'm not going to enjoy this yeah well, well, they sat through iron man too as well um yeah i was gonna say you watch every marvel film and this was like and this one dc film was the 
the nadir of your experience. <laughs> I'm sure there are worse. Um, well, we'll find out, won't we, when I talk about Flash. <laughs> um, I watched Old, the M. Night Shawadi Wadi film that you uh, watched and covered last year. Yes. And um, I can't. what were your thoughts on it? I liked it up until a point, and then it just shits the bed at the end. But I think it does enough to be a good film up until... Because it only really just turns into a little bit of a mess with an unnecessary twist and some weird editing towards the end. But the idea is sound, and I think he capitalises on a really quite disturbing idea. And it's very intense for that middle hour, I'd say. Yes, I agree. I would describe it as an elongated episode of Black Mirror was the vibe I got from it, um, because uh, just sort of a refresher for, unless unless I'll say stop now, and then they have to dig back through our back catalogue to find the episode in which you cover this, and then fast forward to it, listen, and then come back to this point in the modern podcast. Um, the, the story is that um, a lot of uh, people get taken on this holiday, and they effectively find this beach that ages them, uh, and they're all different ages, different groups of people there, um, and what I found was, just as a sort of summary, I thought it was a really interesting idea, but I would say about 70% of the way through the film, I kind of thought, you've you've done all your tricks. Now, there are some great moments in it, including a particularly horrendous death scene um, and some some like quite um, shocking touches involving children. But, mm-hmm. but what I found was, I, I, I kind of felt like, yeah, this is just being drawn out now. And because... I did not believe in the character arcs. I understand that they're sped up because of the, but I didn't, I didn't really didn't believe how people, how certain people reacted to the situation they were in and yeah. how they just suddenly forgave each other. And I, I just thought, I just don't think that would happen. Um, it, it is a, a very sort of silly film, but I have to point out how funny I found Rufus Sewell's character in it because he first, first start he's slowly turning into Ian McShane and any man that slowly turns into Ian McShane is alright in my book. They're easy in the Arkans bar. But mm. he has his voice. His, his, he has a sort of uh, it's described on Wikipedia as schizophrenia but it's more like a sort of bizarre circumstance brought on by extreme duress so whenever he's in a situation where he's like extremely stressed out he tries to remember a film that stars who is it jack nicholson and marlon brando and 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 so he's like there's one scene where he's just performing surgery on a beach with like a bloody sharpened fish knife or something and the whole family gathered around and he's like what's that that film with Jack Nicholson in, but but Marlon Brando as well, and they're all like looking at him saying, "What?" what? And he's like, Thanks. "Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, you know, it, it, it's Jack Nicholson, but and Marlon Brando." And they're like, well, uh, "Can you do the operation?" Um, so that that really tickled me, and it pops up a few times. But yeah, by the end of it, and then there is without sort of spoiling the end because it, 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 the film it's one of those M Night Shyamalan films where it, it's. It's not just reliant on the twist. It, in fact, everything, all the fun comes before it. And the twist is kind of, a, oh, fair enough, whatever. Because you, you've sort of lost interest by that point anyway. But it does yeah. this bizarre, there's this bizarre thing where there's a sort of natural end point. Yep. And, then it, and then it tacks a bit on. That see, and it's that it's almost like someone else filmed that sequence because it seems like a, it just seems like a, an episode of Columbo or something for like 15 minutes. And then, and then it cuts back to the natural end point and extends it. And you're like, right. 
And then it cuts to a really needless last like minute with like, a really flat ending moment. And I thought, what a, a completely unnecessary ending moment, which has already been established. And it's like, this yeah. is irrelevant. This isn't a relevant <laughs> shot. Yeah, because um, it's one of those things where you kind of, you know, you know the films that you sort of stretch on the couch and I, you know, gather the controllers and pick up my phone ready to go to bed. And then I have to sort of sit back down for another 10 minutes <laughs> and I like, think, is this, is why isn't this finished yet? Was it yeah, some sort of legal requirement to hit the 100 minute mark? It feels uh, like it almost, it's like everyone kind of expects Shyamalan to have a twist at the end. And so he's kind of having to live up to that in some way for no good reason because it doesn't serve the film at all no it just seems completely unnecessary it's just there for the sake of it yeah yes it's yeah it's a very uneven film but i it's very effective in for it's as a a, like a really quite messed up body horror it's very effective for a while uh, and i found that it also was a nice conversation starter uh, when I was watching it with Faye, we were kind of talking, oh, if you were on the beach and, you know, what would you do? That kind of thing. Yeah. But of course, it's that kind of film that's sort of forgettable enough for you to be able to sort of chat over at certain points because it doesn't yeah. require your full attention. And I think I remember saying at the time when I watched it is that it, what I did like about it is that it's the kind of film where you can imagine it being a cool setup and a good idea, but not, but the filmmaker doesn't, can't think of an interesting way to actually use the situation um, but I think Jamalan does. He finds some quite gross ideas. And when you kind of like when someone realizes they're pregnant and stuff like that, it's like, oh, my God, what does this mean? What does this mean? Yeah. So, how is this going to pan out? <laughs> no. And it's like it can't be good. Whatever. Whatever is happening is not going to be good. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. It is uneven and worth a watch. But it is funny when the moment when someone says, you're her son. How old are you? And he says, I'm six. And the camera pans around and it's just Walter Matthau. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Eight, <laughs> um, <laughs> But then he just looks. He, I can't imagine Walter Matthau ever not looking like he did, did throughout his entire career, to be honest. He's Look always, at him films in the 50s. He just looks like he did in Grumpy Old Men. He always looks like a demon's distended testicles in every film he's in. I remember watching a film with my nan. Uh, and he it was from the must have been 40s or 50s and he came on screen and he was like slightly twinklier of eye but he still his neck still looked like my knee I you think like, how were you ever a young man is it like benjamin button but with paws pressed <laughs> oh dear right should we uh should we move on what did you what did, where did you watch old i watched it on oh, i've got a feeling it was on prime yeah cool so what's um, your next movie? My next movie. I want to start with a quote on my next movie because I thought it'd be a nice way of like linking it with the previous one. Okay. So I thought this was interesting. It's quite a, it's quite an interesting quote, but it's very very relevant to this movie. So the quote is this: AI systems will go into defensive infrastructure. Ultimately, they'll be in charge of nuclear weapons. To say that there is a separate entity from the person wielding programming, putting that AI to use, then we're doomed. It has to be about accountability. We have to hold people accountable for what they do with the tools that they have. So this is a quote from Christopher Nolan, who's talking about mm. AI very, very recently. And the reason this is relevant is because I'm going to talk you about... You watched Cyberzone? <laughs> Close. I watched War Games, one word. 
but with a capital oh, okay. G. Um, <laughs> That's not awkward at all. Apostrophe? <laughs> or is there like an exclamation mark? <laughs> no, no hyphen or anything else. It's just they slam these two words together. Um, and yet couldn't quite admit they're separate words. Uh, so, <laughs> so yes, this is a 1983 techno drama thing from John Badham, also known for Saturday Night Fever, Stakeout, and yes, Nick of Time with Johnny Depp. Um, and it's... Uh, high stakes high tension uh movie which is kind of i suppose aimed at older kids maybe more on that later because that's a a talking point itself but it's got a fantastic cast of people you'll maybe not recognize their names but you know them when you see them (laughs) put it that way i mean matthew broderick obviously we know him but also there's ali sheedy there's john spencer dabney coleman james tolkien who is of course in back to the future the bald one 92 now still going who's that james tolkien the um he's the he was the bald teacher in back to the future and he always plays that character <clears throat> but yeah, James Tolkien, he's 92 now. And last film he was in, Bone Tomahawk. Uh, oh, what a man. <laughs> what a man, indeed. Uh, and actually, Michael Madsen rocks up very briefly in this film. Um, so, yes, it is a story essentially about um, basically the US government is it, obviously set in the Cold War era. So they've got these nuclear weapons, but basically starts off with something going wrong in this kind of um, nuclear weapons test where the human beings, human operators are told, right, you've got to launch these missiles. And one of them refuses to do it because they don't want to kill millions of people. Um, And this creates a bit of a crisis. They're like, well, you know, can't trust our operators to actually launch the weapons. So that kind of defeats the object. So they decide to install a huge AI computer um i can't remember what it's called it's got a short name grinder or something i can't remember what it is but it's um so yeah they set up this big computer a big ai so the idea is is that the ai will um kind of make that decision for them and it partly does this uh, it's set up to do this by essentially playing through a bunch of possible scenarios uh, where nuclear war could occur, when when it should attack, etc. Um, but basically, this kid uh, Matthew Broderick, who's like a hacker, very early hacker, obviously, uh, hacks in in the most ridiculous way possible, and essentially starts. It triggers this. He um, triggers an event, a kind of failsafe system, which means that. To cut a long story short, it's going to trigger a nuclear attack in like 24 hours. So it's a bit of an emergency and there's no way to stop it. Um, it is it is inevitable that it will happen. So it's sort of a race against time and they'll end up having to bring Matthew Broderick in to kind of save the day in quite a ridiculous way. It is a mix of a lot of absurdity and a bit of plausibility i suppose like the hacking part is ridiculously easy it's just like he just like does a bit of research about the guy who designed the computer and and like finds out the name of his son or something like that and that's literally it and that's how he hacks in um and 
but also he's like capable of just like instantly hacking like government door card scanners and stuff and stuff like that it's pretty ridiculous but yeah anyway um but i did find it it's interesting because this is a film which i always even when i was a kid because it was a bit early for me as a kid but watching it a bit later even i felt that it felt really dated even then but weirdly it's kind of come full circle and it does feel kind of relevant now because of course it relates to the whole ai thing and which is why i started with that quote because actually like the big fear about ai nowadays is that one of the big fears is that if you gave if you give ai a single purpose um then it will potentially stop at nothing to achieve that purpose regardless of any other consequences so that does kind of make it quite chillingly relevant now um but um so this is quite prescient in a way uh it this film war games ends in a, in a very exciting way but a completely preposterous way where essentially matthew broderick's grand plan is to teach the ai the futility of nuclear war which is somewhat idealistic <clears throat> and but it, it's sort of like it's a moral lesson in futility and a little bit preachy frankly but yeah like i said the film is dated on like a technical level like the interfaces and the computer voice and stuff but that stuff just adds to the charm really and well, for all its preachiness, it is it is entirely uncynical. Sorry, go on. Pardon me, sorry. I was just going to say, when you say, I'm trying to work up the tone of the film from what yeah. you've said, because if it, it's about thermonuclear war and it's about teaching yes. the fertility of war, it's not cynical. What's is it a comedy then? No, it's very serious, but but very kind of like light of touch. It's this is and this is brings me back to what i was saying at the start like it it kind of feels like it's for older kids like maybe young teenagers or something or i guess you call them young adults nowadays but it made me think they don't really have that many films like that now i suppose the films for that age group would pretty much be comic book movies i suppose but this is quite different because this is basically a serious drama but with um a kind of like slightly silly plot and slightly over the top characters but it is essentially pretty serious and i just can't imagine them making a movie like this aimed at young people nowadays i think it would be either well i think it would just be a very just be a serious adult drama i can't see it i I can't see it happening any other way uh but in a way I'm just yeah, thinking, 1983, that's when the Atari 2600 came out, right, yeah, in America. So, year after Tron as well. So, it was, <laughs> Yeah, I was just thinking... The graphics were high on the agenda. Is it almost a way of te- teaching children the, the risks and the effects and the scale yeah. of dangers of war in a sort of simplistic, if Quite ideal possibly. way? And it certainly, I mean, it has a strong... I mean, it it's it's kind of telling the right message about war because it's never suggesting that anyone's going to win it in fact that's literally the whole point of it is to the way they kind of get around this whole problem is by making the computer understand that nuclear war has no winners and it's completely futile game which is kind of cool message but also ridiculous but i i suppose if you you can't really have like 
a film like this aimed at younger people it ends with like a, literally an entire continent being wiped out i suppose uh but yeah i think it's good going back to nolan's quote he does have a point about ai and i think war games illustrates the point in quite in a simplistic but enjoyable way so it's worth a watch i think did you watch oppenheimer and then think i need to watch war games to make this an ideal double feature no i i'd already watched war games i actually went through a, a tiny period of watching some uh like cult classic movies but we'll we'll cover more of them in the next episode but this was one of them but i felt that it was very relevant given nolan's comments about ai and well the kind of connection with oppenheimer and stuff so um moving on from that then we were sure. sent a screener for flash which i watched last minute uh yesterday morning and um i have to say up front that i know ezra miller <laughs> troublesome troublesome person um but i i problematic i think is the, the I, I was i was aware that there was magic in the air there but I chose to not read into it and just watch the film blind, if you know what I mean, and then afterwards, so it didn't taint it. Um, so The Flash is a film from Warner Brothers, the based on the member from the Justice League. Is this the first time that Ezra Miller has portrayed Flash? No, there was... He was in Justice League, wasn't he? Was it Justice League? Not sure. So, okay, when it wasn't... Yeah, <laughs> first time he's, like, led a movie, obviously. So... It be- the film begins with uh, Flash, Barry Allen, Ezra Miller as a, a twitchy. Well, uh, Ezra Miller's thirty, but in this uh, in this film, I assume they're meant to be in the like early twenties. And um, he assists Batman and Wonder Woman in stopping a robbery going wrong in Gotham City at a bank. And it's a really good opening sequence, and it sort of set the tone for me because i i found it genuinely funny there were i would say there's mm. three or four times in this film that i actually laughed out loud which is something that doesn't often happen when i watch films because i stitch my mouth shut with staples before i watch anything and <laughs> I, it, it, when it the, the cg has been knocked for being not ideal and that is true but this there's a sequence where a load of babies are thrown out of incubators through a window and time slows down and he has to sort of save them all without manipulating the babies themselves. Because apparently when he, when he sort of moves super fast, if he moves someone too much, it can kind of damage them. Uh, so he's setting up things and items and debris in the fall that will save them without too much manipulation. And it's just a really cool sequence. Um, and following this, he ha- is, finds out what his father's got a final hearing parole hearing and this footage of his father in a supermarket at the time his mother gets killed but he doesn't look up so he can't be identified and Mm -hmm. bruce wayne cleans up the footage and gives it to him and he realizes that it's not going to help his parole hearing and his father's going to be incarcerated for life and he starts running and in his distress thinking he's never going to see his father and he's already lost his mother he runs so fast that he <laughs> shits himself no, he runs so fast that he breaks the light barrier and ends in this poorly presented <laughs> sort of orb in which he can travel back to certain points in time and alter them and batman says da, 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 because you can make a tiny change and in the future uh, it could it could have massive consequences. So don't piss around. You know, you, what, your events of your life are what made who you are, made you who you are. Don't piss around. 
so of course he instantly pisses around and while he's trying to work out how to go back and work out a way to save his mother some fiend leaps out from this sort of speed palace and knocks him through a memory into his own past where he bumps into himself as an 18 year old and he's trying to sort of hide from his family whilst also trying to save his mother and regain his powers and go back to the future and change everything that's happening it sounds more complicated than it is because it's it's actually a really well told story that's quite direct Ezra Miller's a really bizarre screen presence that reminds me a bit of Justin Long in a lot of ways, a young Justin Long, because there's this nerdy, twitchy, awkward, laughy, nervy, never still screen presence, um, both with the same sort of slightly greasy looking hair now that I think about it. Um, and when he's interacting with his younger self, it's really impressive because they are two different ones, more mature than the other. and you do kind of, I kind of forgot that it was the same actor after a while I, because uh, they do look quite different and they are they are played so differently i was watching this film with one goal in my mind and that was to see michael keaton's fucking batman again <laughs> and i was sitting there with my eyes wide open and my hands clasped in prayer just thinking give me michael keaton and what surprised me was i actually found myself enjoying the film the cg in it is is bad and um yes. there the, the, it's everyone in it looks false they look kind of plasticky ps3 era video gamey and there are even bits uh when the film kind of lost me towards the final act where like there's a sequence for example where the two flashes and the super person is zooming along and they all skid to a halt and they don't leave skid marks it's really we want doesn't this game and i thought that's odd and when he runs super fast it's you know did you ever play mdk on the dreamcast i did actually not did on you? the dreamcast i played on pc but yeah couldn't get uh, the sound to work <laughs> yeah do you try the dma7 irq15 um <laughs> when you when people on the ps1 and 2 era games when people run and they just looks like the world is moving around them and they're kind of gliding on yeah. the spot it, it comes across it, it doesn't capture the sense of speed very well so pushing aside the dodgy cg which is quite ridiculous for the you know this is like a top end film so it should really be pristine but that doesn't bother as much as it bothers some <gasps> i would say that i i found it really funny um michael keaton is absolutely glorious in this film there are a couple of moments when he revisits his old lines and there's one that made me sort of cringe a little bit but it's michael keaton being batman again so i let it yeah. slide and he he's genuinely funny and he's not just turns up for three minutes and he's like in a fair old chunk of the film. There are a few other nods to other people who have been previously cast as characters and it never came to be. And you see different versions of them. And mm. whilst it's nice touch because of the CG, it's again quite badly realized. It does suffer from the usual superhero issue of at the end when everything's kicking off. My interest kind of disappears a little bit. Because something this... bigger than a shed explodes. <laughs> that's true two sheds explode at one point and um but the the film seems to have like a a quite nice core to it in that it's just at the heart of it it's just him wanting to see his mum again and Mm -hmm. it it keeps reverting to that at the start and the end and it's obviously uh what's the word sentimental but it's such a simple premise that everyone can relate to and it's done. I thought it was done quite nicely. That the the heart of the film was there throughout. So when it got silly, 
you yeah. know that after it it would strip itself back down to the story about this one person uh, and their one narrative and I, I i quite liked it it's been one of my favorite um superhero films in a while actually and i can i would happily kind of watch it again although yeah. again after watching the film <laughs> and reading about ezra miller you think oh, <laughs> yeah yes. it I'm does sp- make you what it really you know it makes me think it makes you think how bad was batgirl if this was the movie that they thought they'd push into cinemas, I mean, of course, it's completely flopped and loses it's going to lose them a couple hundred million or whatever. But wow, I mean, it must have been that film must have been so bad if they decided because Ezra Miller <laughs> to put a finer point on it, like his antics, which involve like harassment and attacking women and grooming children and stuff like it's not good. It's not a good look. And yeah, it's not they, ideal, is it? they were pushing this. They went for it. Uh, they went all out. I don't think it's, he's going to get another gig like this. No. And it's a real shame because it's a good performance and mm. genuinely funny. And also it's a shame that this Michael Keaton was caught up in this because he's so good. Like he doesn't miss a beat and he's, yeah. he, he is, not modernizing his Batman at all. Uh, he, it's just, it's okay. clearly Michael Keaton, the way he moves, the way he talks, the economy of movement that for me typified his Batman yeah. is still very much here. And I just thought, mm-hmm. I feel like this is just the next step. So it's worth watching it just for that because he is, he's great in it. And if you can push aside Ezra Miller's personal life, which I can understand will be extremely difficult for some people. It is, it's a good performance, and, and I'm surprised it's bombed. I mean, I, I don't know much about the machinations of the movie industry as much as you do, but I was surprised to read that it bombed because I thought I actually quite enjoyed that. You know, I, I watched well, it and I... I think there's, uh, there's multiple issues here. It's not just the Ezra Miller thing, but also is the fact that James Gunn has now taken over at DC and has quite publicly said, right, we're resetting it all and starting again effectively starting with well as terms of feature films he's starting with superman it's called superman legacy or something like that but he's gonna so that he's gonna kick it all off this new dc universe with oh, superman hang on legacy. now so what's happening what's happening with the next robert pattinson batman then i'm not sure how that all fits into it. i think there's perhaps going to be something separate there like, oh good because i, I mean that's that. still happening and whatever happens i don't think that counts i i think the bigger issue is going to be stuff like I mean, this Blue Beetle coming up, which I just got bomb written all over it. But because it's a shame, it, that's because the Blue Beetle yeah. character is actually really good, and I quite like the Blue Beetle when he turns up in the animated series. But yeah, yeah and I, I mean, I, the trailer make, it looks amusing enough. But I just, you know, the problem is, is that like the Flash is probably the bit highest profile DC movie, I guess, before the big reset. And the problem is, is that of course, like what is really like what are the stakes now if it's if it's public if it's been publicly stated that it's effectively going to become irrelevant <laughs> like why there's no real investment in it but then yeah. i suppose i mean it's like just ripping off the band-aid isn't it i suppose i think james gunn realized they had to do something because none of these films are really making marvel type money not even no. sure marvel are making marvel type money nowadays but there you go it is a shame because I mean, as we said before, I, I I treat all of the films I watch as just standalone projects, effectively, and this was one that I really did enjoy. Did so, you? How did you feel about? I mean, I've seen a lengthy clip of this 
partly to kind of slightly mock the bad CGI, but it was a clip in which I noticed that the Nick Cage, Nick Cage Superman, was it Tim Burton was going to direct or something like that, that was going to happen in the 90s, which never happened, but he's in it briefly, looking a bit plasticky. And, yes. But but also in that during that same sequence, it also goes through a bunch of incarnations, but Christopher Reeve rocks up, and I, it felt a bit weird because it's like, I don't know, that, like, he didn't really have a say in this. I'm not sure I'm fully on board with the idea of just resurrecting I'm sure dead actors. I'm sure his estate would have, though. Yeah, I guess. His uh, is, is, is visage. But also, with those, 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 those parts of the film are really brief. It's, it's like that's where he's in this sort of central hub and he's... Yeah. And his the Flash's actions are causing the fabric of other worlds to sort of bleed into each other, and they're literally just glimpses, almost as if he's looking into a screen of another world where that version of Superman is kind of looking back, and then it and then it all. Yeah, I, I guess they could have got. So it's just it's just a nod. It's a nod. It's not really enough to cause any offence. Maybe it's a standalone. If someone says, "Oh, look at this! Can't believe they've done this," and you watch a fifteen-second clip on YouTube, in the contents of the film, it's, it's mm. fine. And also. Would anyone give a shit if it was an amazing film which everyone loved? And if it wasn't, and if it so wasn't already hated, yeah. Miller. Pre-hated. Oh my god. <laughs> uh, well, so that sounds quite promising. Then I'm not sure whether I'd, I'd, I'd be intrigued for you to watch it because okay. I, I, I watched it and I was I was preparing myself for disappointment, and which I don't normally do when I watch films because I always try to be positive. But I thought, oh, you know, how's this going to go? But then, of course, it was almost like Michael Keaton was what I was. I went in there expecting to enjoy, and I actually came out of it thinking, oh, quite, you know, I quite enjoyed that film. I mean. I don't really give a shit about Ezra Miller, but my main concern was just having Michael Keaton rock up and not and just be kind of like not the Batman he was sort of thing, just sort of modernized version of him. But you're say, if you're saying that he's retained a lot of that economy and that dry humor, then I'm up yeah, when, that. when he turns up at the start, he without giving too much away, you, when he first bumps into it because he needs his help in this uh, in this sort of slightly alternate historic timeline um he, he he's just <laughs> very different and i thought oh is this going to be an awkward cameo but then he he very quickly becomes the sort of batman we know and love well my favorite batman um and yeah and and it's just it just for, for, for half an hour it feels like the michael keaton experience oh that's good and and to be honest that's such a beautiful thing to see at the age that Michael Keaton is in the world we live in. That to, to have half hour of Michael Keaton as Batman is completely fine in my book. I'm so glad Michael Keaton's more popular than ever. It's cool. All right. Um, okay. Is that everything? That's all that's, the films. Yeah, I've, 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 I purposely didn't watch any films so we could talk about the worst films, the ever, worst made. films ever made. Officially, objectively, the worst films ever made. But, of course, the problem being that it's not actually possible to know what the worst films ever made are and what does it actually mean anyway? Because this is there's a lot of aspects to this. Like, what you can't really say objectively. You, like, what, what does it really mean? Most disappointing? By what measures are you actually analysing the worst films ever made? Personally, I looked through the films that I'd rated lowest on IMDb and picked out the ones that 
perhaps serve as some kind of cautionary tale, i.e. what can go wrong with filmmaking tools and film franchises put in the wrong hand, should we say? I, can, I, can I just sort of, I off air, we discussed this and I, and I wanted Rupert to take the lead on this one. I just wanted to sort of chip in every now and again. But when I was thinking about, as you said, you know, it's obviously subjective. The worst films ever made. Mm. I mean, the house, the house of VHS is certainly up there. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but, but I think I was trying to think about it. You know, you, you take in terms of budget and yeah. what's available at the time, the time a film was made, how it was received. For example, in my head, you set me up for computer chess and said, you know, you, you were talking about it and you loved it. And then I went into it really positively. Whereas if I just sat down and checked that film on by myself, would I have thought oh, I'm not the right frame of mind for this? I, if this is boring, off. What is now? It's one of my favourite films. I don't but, know. I, don't, I think you would have loved it. But yeah. But, but I was thinking, and, I, and I've always said this throughout the podcast: is I hate being bored. I don't. <laughs> I hate being bored, and I I don't like any form of. And and it is at its heart, it's a form of entertainment. And I think yeah. if I I know you dislike extremely dislike being emotionally manipulated by movies. I. I really hate when I'm completely uninvested in something and I'm bored and I'm just thinking I'm getting nothing from this. So that to me is my absolute, like that's my sort of bottom line, if you know what I mean. So that's how I'm, how I'm approaching this conversation. That's fine. Uh, I agree. You certainly have to, I think you touched on it there that you have to put a film into its context and consider how it was made. Cause obviously, you know, like, Think about something like, uh, say, John Carpenter, right? The kind of the canon of John Carpenter. Like, you look at something like Dark Star, which he obviously made very early on. It's You look at it as a cool student movie he made at film school, which is essentially what it is. Rather than, you don't see Dark Star as a serious piece of filmmaking from, like, an author like John Carpenter. Like, you put it in the context, you think, wow, this shows a lot of promise. If that's all he'd made, then it'd be like you'd never it'd be forgotten about. But you put it into the context of the of the canon, and you know, and it's the same with like if it's an extremely low budget independent movie, then I don't know, like you've got to give it points for effort, right? In a way, yeah. it's more shameful for someone with all the tools at their disposal and all the <sighs> budget. And all the freedom and they still make a piece of shit but one thing i will say is that i uh, the all the ones i looked with considering were all english language although i will say that there are terrible foreign films as well uh like something like i don't know how to pronounce it but base moi which means rape me in french or mm. or some boring crap by Bella Tarr or Michelangelo Antonioni. <laughs> Antonioni, Jesus Christ. Uh, or like an art house sex film by Tinto Brass. He did Caligula, Sal and Kitty. Probably, and generally have a picture of a woman's ass in the cover. And <laughs> or like there was a film. Speaking of foreign films, there's a film by a Polish filmmaker called Valerian Borachik. Made in 1975, called The Beast or La Bête, which is a 1975 year like erotic horror film supposedly. Basically, where a woman is being chased around by a creature with an enormous erection, 
and which features simulated bestiality and where the monster in the end is defeated because he wanks himself to death. I this is a lot, bad. A lot These of your worst films involve bonking and shagging, Rupert, I noticed. Yeah. You then. They're so so trash so trashy though. It's like these are bad movies, but um and yet you're still pretty sure the beast is in the Criterion correct collection, for goodness sake. Anyway. Also, I think there are things other films you gotta not include because th- things that I consider like something like Plan Nine from Outer Space. Wanking is... yourself to death. Well, he's a beast. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I've got I'm not some... sure that was a story of beauty and a beast, to be honest. I've got some bad news about your your father, Mister Jones. Oh my God, was he was he hit by a car? Hmm. Not, <laughs> not exactly. Not exactly. He, he, he died a bit happier been, than that. He seems to have been hit by a barrage of extremely erotic thoughts from. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. He had his Tinto brass boxer out. <laughs> <laughs> and he was holding his ham candle. <laughs> he had his Tinto brass. He slipped on his Tinto brass box set, you see. He slipped it on. He slipped, it on. <laughs> he slipped it into the into the VHS player. Um, <laughs> Slipcase. <laughs> um <laughs> Something like Plan 9 from Outer Space. <laughs> he had his Tinto brass Um, Like, Plan 9 is fetishized as being really bad, but, you know, it's just remember, there were ten a penny back then, bad movies. I- I'll also mention The Room, like, and I'm still convinced that with The Room, that actually its terribleness is partially deliberate, so I think that's out of the picture. And then you got something like The Happening, the Shyamalan one, which, despite its script and acting and its plot, there's too much film making craft in there to be the worst film ever made. And then you got something like Death Wish, which is reprehensible. And yet, I don't want to shit on Bruce Willis because he's in a bad way. So you got him. Oh, so I think you were talking about the original, then, but you mean the remake? Yeah, I mean, the original is no. But the remake is. Whew, yeah. It's not good. Um, I'm, I'm still laughing at the name <laughs> Tinto Brass. Um, <sighs> also, I've previously mentioned that the worst film ever made is Interstellar Civil War, right? Shadows yes. of the Empire, whatever they're called. The Albert Pean. Well, Albert, Albert Pean, yeah. But I've had to take this off the list because... Oh. Because I didn't realise... Well, I knew that Albert Pean was ill. He was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2013. And he's he was diagnosed with dementia in 2017, which meant he probably would have had it for a long time before that. Uh, and Interstellar Civil War was made in 2017 as his last film. So I think I can't, I can't shit on that film too much because clearly he was not a well man. He was not a well man. Yeah, that's true. So I think it's a bit unfair. So I put a different one on his, on the list anyway, different peon film. Um, oh, cyborg. <laughs> Actually not. Well, I might as well jump straight to that one. I put on there Captain America 1990. <laughs> I say 1990. Well, it was finally released in 92. And I suppose Captain America 1990 was kind of riding the good wave, wave of good feeling after Batman 89. But that's not all the story, because actually Canon had the rights in the early 80s and they went through all kinds of revisions until they finally settled on Albert Pune, of all people, <laughs> who knocked out a movie in 1990 and it was too bad to release for two years. Like, oh. this is a movie where, like, 
Albert Pune's idea of an exciting action scene is a panning shot of Captain America running across a field and jumping over a fence. <laughs> Matt, Matt, Matt Salinger's Salinger. father is J.D. Salinger. Really? The writer of Catcher in the Rye. I did not realise that. That is a hell of a bit of trivia. So yeah. his, his father wrote one of the most seminal pieces <laughs> of literature in the last sort of century and he was a shit Captain America. It's it's so badly conceived, this film, because it's like, it's so violent as well. I don't know who it's for. It opens with a really violent machine gun massacre. It's like, what? Is, who is this for? And even though it's got Ronnie Cox booting open the door of a prison, not good enough. Absolutely terrible. And I suppose if we, so the idea is, is if we want to draw a lesson out of this, right, a filmmaking lesson, right, Anytime anyone says something like, ah, oh, The Flash is the worst film ever made, or even the worst superhero movie ever made, it's like, it's not true. It might not come up to your standards in the context of modern uh, comic book movies, but I think personally the worst crime in modern comic book movies is that they consistently hit a baseline of mediocrity and never fall below it. Or that far above it. That's the problem. And this is a problem we've always had with stuff like Marvel. Is that essentially they just hover around the six out of ten mark. Everything they they are tediously competent. And so the lesson we draw from this is things could be a lot fucking worse. Basically. <laughs> so you're you're going to give the listeners and me a, like a lesson, a, a takeaway from. Well, this yeah, that is my takeaway from this. If we're going to learn anything from a film like that, but you know, you you see it all the time. Oh, you know, this is oh. especially when it comes to like DC movies, the worst film I've ever seen. Come on, it's not. It's really not. You need to see Captain America 1990. Uh, you need to see what was the one that bloody awful West Craven Swamp Thing. West Craven Swamp Thing. These are bad movies. He's a bad comic book movie. It's astonishing. Just thinking about this because I'm like Albert Pian. Uh, he he did he did Captain America in 1990, and he must have thought, you know, I've got to learn from this. I've got to I'm gonna make a game, and I go, you know, back to basics. I'm gonna make Blood Match. 1991. I have to. I need to watch more Albert Pian first. Captain America 1990. By the way, if the 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 listeners want to check it out, it's you can rent it for I think 250 on Apple TV, but it's not available anywhere for free. So, because I would like, I'd like to watch this because I mean, I reckon you can find it on YouTube somewhere. I doubt they would have taken it down. Because <laughs> um, um, yeah, so, like you say, you, like Albert Pean hasn't only made bad films. I mean, Cyborg was okay. The original Nemesis was alright, I think. Doll Man, I quite enjoyed. I think that's my favourite of his. Had some fun action and some silly humour. But he's yeah. made some of the worst films ever, yeah. including Stellar Civil War. But also Nemesis Four. Road to Hell, oh my God, that film. Existential angst on a green screen highway. <laughs> Is that the name of a film? No, that was just my, just that was my assessment of Road to Hell. It's astonishing. <laughs> I think it might be based on a book, but wow, astonishing. Albert Pean, yeah. So that's what we get from that. Um, so that was, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that conversation. So what, what's next on your uh, on your list of which films I've made? This is one that I have watched fairly recent. I think I mentioned this in a recent-ish episode, The Queen's Corgi, which was 
I don't know when it was made. Yes. Well, yeah. This was the one, is it like a Belgian made, supposedly children's animation, uh, obviously set in Britain, starring Jack Whitehall. Uh, the man yeah. who ruined Asterix. <laughs> um, and it's the one, I, I mean, I won't go over it in detail again, but it's essentially it's hideously inappropriate for children, basically. Like the scene where the dog gets excited by being stroked and pees all over the place, basically ejaculates, or the way that he falls in love with a pole dancer, or where Melania Trump's dog sexually assaults another dog. It's grotesquely unfunny and mean-spirited. And, yeah, it's just Jack Whitehall's performance is just nails down a chalkboard, really. So what lesson do we learn from the Queen's Corgi? Well... This is what I could think of is that for all the complaints about like Pixar losing it or Disney going woke or whatever, this we have to look at something like the Queen's Corgi as a possible alternative reality because it, things could be a lot worse than they are in the world of Disney. Like Strange World might have gay characters and interracial couples, but it isn't actually going to damage your child like this film would. Like, if you put the Queen's Corgi in front of a child, they would possibly be, like, worse people afterwards. It's that bad. It's actually... Like, when you think about how actually just, like, immoral it is, in a way, like, because the, the stuff that happens in this film is so grotesque and so inappropriate, and yet it's, it's meant to be this knockabout slapstick comedy. Like... Great slapstick comedy in the kind of Looney Tunes tradition, say. Like, you look at where that would be now. It'd be in something like uh, Scrat from the Ice Age movies, which is amazing, by the way. Or everything involving Scrat is brilliant because it's like super violent, but like in such a comedic way, in such an inventive way. It's hilarious. But that's... That's different to this, where it's like deeply, like, like it's all about like sexual exploitation and things like that. It's really, really quite corrupt. And so, what I'm, I, saying, I, what, what I'm saying is, is that for all the complaints about the direction that Disney's taking, like, I mean, you can still rely on the world of Disney to provide something which is at least something that you can trust with your children. I watched a lot of Looney Tunes stuff the other day, actually. I watched some um, Foghorn Leghorn mm. and Tom, Tom and Jerry, my personal favourite. And yes, brilliant. St- still laughing at them. And it's almost like the the violence is it's completely superficial and utterly harmless. Like the, yeah. it's, the, the jokes don't come from. Don't come from the intensity of what's happening. It's the absurdity and just the visual of them. It's the inventiveness so, of the violence. Yeah, like it's so it's just, ridiculous. And and yeah, harmless. It's like it establishes the rule that whatever actually happens to these, animals, they're all going to be whatever. fine anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same as like Roadrunner or something. It's it's funny because it's like the formula's there. You know, he's never going to catch him, and you know, at some point, someone's going to just literally die in front of your eyes. But they're going to be okay. <laughs> they're going to come back. That's yeah. it. In a film like Queen's Court, you don't know what's going to happen next, and it, it could be, it could be something truly dark. <laughs> I'm not. I'm never going to watch this. I'm just looking <laughs> at the cast as well, and the fact that it actually made money is disheartening. Yeah, I, well, but I 
do believe that there's honestly when it when it comes to like young kids films the thing is I, i'm pretty sure that they must time them so that essentially there's as far as possible you're the only kid on the block right because when parents want to take a kid to the cinema because it's raining or whatever the parents aren't going to aren't thinking to themselves oh i want to specifically see this film what they do is they look at the cinema listings and think right what what is the most bearable what is a kid's, kids film, film to, yeah. yeah what is a kid's film i will take them to that and i my worry is is people would have seen the queen's corgi and thought i oh, looks harmless enough and yet no it's deeply corrupt anyway so uh yeah come back disney all is forgiven um <laughs> i will talk let's talk about grizzly a mm. film that was made in 1976 and i including this because it's the absolute nadir of creature feature copycat twaddle it's such a blatant ripoff of jaws but obviously involving like a, a supposedly like 15 foot bear but is it a dude in a suit Rupert there are dude in suits moments I mean they have some shots of an actual bear but most yeah there are oh, it's so badly made. it's absolutely zero filmmaking craft and like terrible photography <laughs> editing acting script it's astonishing and of course the problem is it, it lose it's already lost the essential terror of jaws because with jaws it's like well what's beneath the surface here it's like well the bear's either there or it's not really it's like there's no it's not going to hide behind a bush or something is it it's just there so anyway grizzly wow astonishing and i thought i thought <laughs> What's the, what's, the lesson, what's the lesson we can learn from this? And I'm, I want to add it here, but just to highlight how complete and total opportunistic nonsense has always been Hollywood bread and butter. Like, there's always been this crap. A common complaint these days is that Hollywood has no new ideas, but it's been churning out crappy rehashes of popular films forever. Uh, so next time you see, like, a shoddy straight-to-streaming knockoff, just... Ignore it and move on and forget about it because it's always happened. That's the point. It's always been ripped off, rip-offs. Whenever you see like a popular film, always been crap like this. No one's heard of Grizzly. And there's a reason for that. It's total shit. That's why. Didn't you, was this when you were trawling through Rotten T- Tomatoes looking at the worst films ever made just to punish yourself? I think it was on eight. No, it's not. I don't think it's an absolute zero, honestly. It's a... Uh, but... It's not well reviewed, and um, I think it's a part of the 88 films um, catalog. 88 films is like imagine like you know Arrow Video would get like um, actually sort of semi high quality uh, B movies from like the 80s. 88 films would get like the real like D list stuff, and this was one of them, and it's quite staggering, but but also indicative of the fact that this shit has already always existed and the reason you've never heard of it you're never going to watch it is because it's been forgotten about correctly forgotten about right. just like all of the same rehash nonsense you get nowadays it will be forgotten about so let's not sweat it um so that was grizzly never watch that uh <laughs> sounds so bad it is so bad uh I want to mention a film called Blackenstein because 
this movie. But this was it's obviously it's like a it's not just a black exploitation riff on the Frankenstein story. It's also riding on the coattails of another better black exploitation movie, namely Blackula. Blackula, yeah. Yeah. This was made in like nineteen seventy three, I think, so like they whizzed it out in a year. It's just crushingly inept and so completely exploitative and crass. I mean, I suppose that's partly the point of black exploitation, but it's the worst example of a self-defeating black exploitation movie I've come across, I think. And I, I suppose the lesson here is partly you can't hide behind comedy when it comes to quality. You can't just say, oh, it's a comedy, so you get away with it. No, whatever. Yeah. It's crap. If it's crap, it's crap. Also, the lesson for all of us is don't use the worst example of a subgenre as representative of that subgenre because black exploitation was a very mixed bag but films like this really do the movement a disservice because there are good black exploitation films outside of foxy brown and shaft and actually good black exploitation horror films like blackula like ganger and hess like sugar hill but there was also for all of that there was low effort shit like this and it was it it's just so inept in terms of just like the plot making no sense in terms of like just scenery looking like it's been painted by a child. Um, but, but yeah. Um, but I suppose that's, but it's not indicative of the overall quality of that film movement, but Blackenstein is really, really the lowest point of black exploitation as far as I'm concerned. Um, another horror movie. Jaws the Revenge. We've talked about this fairly recently as well. Otherwise known as Jaws 4, of course. Ill-conceived conceptually and utterly inept as a piece of filmmaking. And uh, and we've talked before about like the many issues with this film, not least the fact that it's a shark that follows the... Who are they? Brody family? Like... Is it across a flight? Is it in that with the? We actually had a, um, an email from a listener about this thing. Yeah, we did, didn't we? A marine biologist said it would not. A shark would not follow a plane, <laughs> like swimming and lo- looking up to see if it's still below it. And there are other, there are many other issues with the film apart from being immensely boring and not actually featuring that much in the way of shark stuff for a lot of it, and wasting Lance Guest, who should have been a bigger star. There's a lot of sad things about this film but perhaps we can use it to highlight what inevitably happens to franchise filmmaking after after a time it will eventually feature a jumping shark obviously but i think it made me think about like franchise filmmaking in general like because it used to be the case that it was always a case of like one sequel after another one sequel after another of dwindling return should we say yeah whereas now i suppose the version of that would be something like a shared universe and we talked about this already i suppose it's just the latest incarnation of the way that franchises are built is the shared universe no one's really got it right except marvel i suppose but really it's just the latest version of disguising a dearth of new ideas and i think the difference really is this so if you have a series of films which are like one two three four so you you what you're basically doing is putting the same characters into different situations with diminishing returns right um but 
but if you're doing it like a, a kind of like a shared universe or you know across multiple marvel kind of uh scenarios then the difference is that you're putting essentially putting different characters into the same situations which amounts to the same thing if you see the distinction there so with sequels it's same characters into different situations with a shared universe you're putting different characters into the same situations which is because really it amounts to the same thing it's just with the shared universe you can almost like flog that dead horse even longer because if you just change the costumes whoever said or change the ensemble cast you can still thrust them into the same crappy hackneyed uh dramatic scenario of whatever it is someone threatening to destroy earth or whatever but you can have the illusion of being a completely different thing because you've changed the costumes you change the characters names and stuff but it is really the same thing it's sort of just replacing just direct sequels as far as i'm concerned either way a film franchise will always end up in the doldrums where however you look at it and there's a reason why a trilogy for example feels like a natural limit because it mirrors the traditional and frankly quite a satisfying three-act classical narrative structure and really that's really where it should end i mean you think about the amount of movie series which should have just ended at number three if that uh that could be a future episode actually we look at we look at trilogies of films and where maybe maybe uh, examples where the the third film was never made and there could have been a trilogy or where the trilogy was overly long and there was a quadrilogy and it lost its way that could be quite interesting and i think yeah and it'd be interesting to find the exact point at which they do start losing their way because well i mean jaws had already lost its way pretty quickly to be fair but i just think as well it, it like a film like this is so bad it can just because there's a joke isn't there in um what's it called um in back to the future 2 where the 3d shark jumps out at him and it's like jaws 15 is on at the cinema because the idea was is that they were just going to keep making these things as a franchise but of course jaws 4 was so bad it killed the franchise because there's a point at which it would it is just going to stop dead like i don't know how they've done it with a with a with a series like fast and furious somehow that just keeps going yeah i've only seen a handful of those films maybe one or two so it would be interesting to see again watch those films from that could be your next um i don't know my brother already did it also really lucky as well um steven spielberg and all the designers of these posters for the jaws movies that a shark's head when viewed from below is shaped like an a because it was if it was shaped as a circle then they'd have to call it joe's Jows. <laughs> um, I just want to. Uh, oh God, look at the time. Look at the time. All right, let's whiz through a couple more because. Well, we can no, no, don't whiz through. We can make this a two part of this. That's no problem at all because I haven't talked about mine yet. <laughs> yeah, we actually, we. How about you talk about a couple of yours and maybe we can break it over a couple of episodes so that we don't get burned out on terrible content. Okay, well, I, I, the two of mine that I, this was. I purposely didn't make a list before because I wanted to sort of listen to yours. But some of the things you said just brought up memories of ones I've seen. And one of those is The Legend of Boggy Creek 2, which I watched with my brother once a long time ago. And it is people 
ostensibly it's a Bigfoot movie, but what it actually boils down to is a lot of people just going on a hike and just mumbling to each other and looking at looking at bushes and smoking and sort of just shuffling along a hiking trail. And there's a midpoint where the main action sequence, you know, you said in Captain America 1990, the main action sequence is <laughs> Matt Salinger, the son of J.D. Salinger, celebrated author, running a <laughs> running across a field and jumping over a fence. <laughs> There's a bit in, in, in The Legend of Boggy Creek 2 where the, the sort of keening violins are reaching the crescendo and someone open an, opens an outhouse door and a dog runs out. And that is like the main centerpiece. And they all laugh like, oh, it was a dog. It wasn't Bigfoot. Was and it a shocking, end, scary event? Or just a dog? Massive letdown, but at least something was happening apart from a lot of middle-aged men talking and walking down a hiking trail slowly. And at the end of the film, they see like some bushes rustling and they all look at each other and say, oh, so Bigfoot does exist. And then it just ends. And that was bad. That's a bad film. Um, and the other one is... What is the lesson we can draw from this film? <laughs> What's the lesson we've driven? It's just, I think it's just, I think what I learned, a lesson I learned from a lot of like, these low budget, like you said, creature features mainly, because yeah. it, it, they have, they'll have an image of something on the front, whether it's a shark or a bear, or in this case, Bigfoot. And they think that's enough to carry the film. And it, so you just get 80 minutes of nonsense. And as long as you, it's revealed at some point. Yeah. It's almost that they think right, that's enough for the audience. And if the reveal is effective enough and sustained enough and threatening enough, scary enough, etc., that can almost work. And yet, it so often disappoints, doesn't it? So often doesn't. So that would be my takeaway from that, is if you're sitting down making a horror film, don't think, oh, look, we've managed to get hold of this cool suit or some a cool CG monster. <laughs> don't think that you can do anything else around that fact. Like, there has to yeah. be a film. Um, and Unless there's a Predator, in which case the reveal is just incredible. Yeah, it's such a, that's such a... I remember watching that a couple of years ago and still just had that that rush of like what a cool design what a threatening how terrifying cool <laughs> yeah um, and it's just something about the way that when he takes his helmet off and he sp- spreads its arms and roars and it dwarfs arnie and you just think <sighs> that if you were standing and there's something about the fact they're in kind of shin high water which would sort of slow you down as well and it's dark it, and, and it's, it's dark like, oh, i just like, give no up. escape you think oh just tear my head off and have sex with me <laughs> That's what's going to happen in the, hopefully in that order. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's still, still one of the best monster reveals. That's another good good thing for the future. We could talk about the best monster reveals. But, yeah, I might even just watch that before I go to bed, the Predator reveal. Um, and the other thing that always pops in my head, and, and I've, I haven't thought about this film for a long time, but whenever it pops into my head, it absolutely deserves to be in these conversations of the worst films ever made. Howling 7, New Moon Rising. Um <laughs> This was one that was, I think, have I got it here? Yeah. Directed by, screenplay by, produced by, starring, edited, and from the production company of Clive Turner. Um, and it's a film, and I, I cannot make this sound drab enough, right? It's, this, it's a, ostensibly a werewolf film, but it's effectively about a ginger man going to a town and just like drinking and farting and occasionally asking people about werewolves and them just ignoring him. And it's just, there's an extended comedy sequence where they're all sitting around eating beans and taking a turns to fart laughing. Mm. It's just him just ambling around looking in buildings and having half conversations with people. And at the very end of the film, 
someone in a like a cheap dollar store Halloween werewolf mask comes out and they get shot. And then it just everyone sort of crowds around and looks down at the camera on the floor looking up and there's a freeze frame ending. And it was just wow. it just was it's nothing. The film is absolutely nothing. Any so, no, there's a person in a Halloween mask at the end that I, it's so yeah. bad. I don't even know if it's supposed to be a werewolf because it's so fake. It's like was did they just mistakenly shoot someone who was playing a trick or was that supposed to be an actual werewolf? I might have put my mind was just numb from watching it. Um it's one of those it may have been a truly ambiguous ending then. I suppose. I mean, if someone wants to write a thesis on that, feel free. <laughs> don't let me read it. But I, I would say that those two are the, in terms of horror, because horror is so easy and cheap to make that I think everyone is after their Blair Witch, aren't they? Everyone's trying to get their Blair Witch. And it's kind of yeah. good. Like some some great directors have come out of there with, with a horror film because it can – it's if you've got a little bit of flair well most yeah i'd say most directors have started with horror really there's actually yeah i mean i think even i think even martin scorsese started out with basically a horror film uh which is a it's a very short film where a guy is standing in front of a mirror like shaving and he just ends up like hacking bits of his skin off and stuff like that it's like pretty messed up but I think with oh, horror, I know what you mean. It's called yeah. "I'm not very good at shaving." Yeah, whoops, I missed. I think it's called. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and uh, you know, like uh, obviously Peter Wh- Jackson. Whoops, I missed colon the botched suicide. <laughs> um, so yes, because horror films, and I, I've said it before, they're kind of like total cinema in a way because there's so much craft that can go into them. Uh, you can make them on a low budget, but you can also use so many different tricks. It's such a good filmmaking lesson, isn't it? Such so filmmaking teacher, I should say, is horror films because there's so many different elements that can go into it. Because uh, you get to have to deal with like music, makeup, you know, editing, uh, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's all there. Um, but I- yeah, it can be absolutely terrible as well it sounds like both of those choices have a similar problem being that it's the crushing disappointment of not actually being an effective horror movie at all it, it you know it's one of those moments when you, you you're watching a film and and at some point you just sort of think to yourself nothing's happening <laughs> regardless of you know i'm i'm not I'm, like I'm, I'm watching i'm watching images move and i'm hearing sounds nothing's happening i may as well just be looking out of a window at a river um all right let me finish off this section with one last movie and uh, because it's relevant to what we're talking about because there's one last horror movie which i want to mention which is notably bad which is to give it its full title avpr colon aliens versus predator hyphen requiem and I, it's another example of a franchise hitting its lowest ebb, should we say. Like, it's basically a teen slasher with a xenomorph facade on it, really, with these endless, incomprehensible sewer scenes in it. But I suppose the lesson here is that it's what this is what happens when a franchise gets to a point where everyone involved 
seems to have forgotten about what made the original film successful. Bear in mind, this is a. Are we talking about? Predator. Are we talking about Die Hard or Alien vs Predator now? <laughs> we get to Die Hard in the next episode, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but this one, like, it made me think, like, okay, there's a lot to hate about whiny modern geek culture and fan service. Uh, you know, fans bitching about the particular shade of red on Superman's cloak or whatever, but. <sighs> At least that kind of like mob power can hold studios to account to make it more than a mere numbers game. Do you see what I mean? Like it's so cynical. Aliens vs Predator Requiem isn't just a bad movie, a terrible movie, but it's also so cynical and misguided and completely uh, uh, negligent of what made those original films that it's built on that is cashing in on um what made those films successful in the first place as artistic works and so at least i i can't see something like that happening again so much because frankly uh geeky modern audiences expecting fan service will not have it which is why you know like they'll with like something like the aliens franchise they end up going back to ridley scott who made a good alien movie in the form of covenant someone like that so and they're making a tv series now i think which could be pretty cool but anyway point is uh the power of the geek mob is needed to make sure that crap like that doesn't happen again Maybe I'm just being a bit too hopeful. They probably could make something that bad, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean that was that was so bad that I mean when I watched the first Alien versus Predator, it, it completely alienated me. I thought, oof, and I just remember my brother was it Requiem where my my brother summed it up as effectively teenage love triangles yeah. with aliens in the background, and he, and then there's a scene in the film that he always quotes where one of them needs to go to like a football stadium. The other one needs to go to the top of a supermarket or something. Uh-huh. And then the leaders of the two sort of groups turn around and say, well, I hope we're both wrong. <laughs> and you say, well, you should say, I hope we're both right because then you'll both be rescued. If you hope you're both wrong, you'll both die. Yeah. That'd be the worst for everyone. Um, your brother actually sent me a clip of, of talking about homoeroticism in movies and, there's a really bad article in GQ magazine about um, homoeroticism in uh, Christopher Nolan's films. And I, I read that. It's, it's that a terrible, terrible, oh terrible article. Oh, my God, article. that article. Like, I thought, I mean, I don't know whether it was meant to be a joke. I guess it was meant to be a joke. But it pissed me off, that did, because, I mean, it's not in any way analytical for a start. I mean, it's, it seems to be presented as some sort of a joke, but it's also just completely stupid like it doesn't have any evidence for this assertion that there's any homoeroticism in like Christopher Nolan's films at all. Uh, like the closest it gets is like, I don't know, like Bane having his top off or something, you know, in Dialogue Rises. It's like, what? What are you talking about? It's just it's, really uh, reaching at best. And it's just And it's really superficial and also it's not it's not it's not sort of zany enough to be funny. No. So it's just it's just this really clickbaity lazy article in a national magazine it was just i i, I imagine it's designed to enrage 
online Christopher Nolan fans because they can be quite rabid, but no, like it's too dumb to like it's not funny as satire and too stupid to be taken seriously. But yeah, that was irritating. I uh, but that, but it was clickbait crap. Yeah, it's just terrible. Um, but your brother sent me a link and said, you know, this is this is real homoeroticism in movie making, and he sent me a thirty second clip of the scene in Bloodsport where. Uh, I don't remember Jackson, the sort of American wrestler character, is 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 in bed, and John Claude Van Damme tells him he loves him and gives him a really meaningful, lengthy kiss on the cheek. Mm. Um, but but it's actually quite like a tender scene, especially in a film of that genre at that time. But mm. what I what made me think what was he? They hold the clasping hands, and he kisses him on the cheek, and then John Claude Van Damme says, "I love you," and then Jackson, who's obviously been beaten up badly in bed, says, "Me too." And, and I thought, what, you love yourself? <laughs> what? It, it, it should have been... Like a, yeah, you see, they resolved this problem, this semantic problem in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, because she says, I like you, and he says, me too, but about you. See, there you go. You just need that extra few words. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs is a better script than Bloodsport as well. It makes more sense. We've been confused for 40 <laughs> years now with Bloodsport. Forty years of confusion. Anyway, enough about my life. Um, so, yeah. So, we, okay. So, this looks like it's going to be a two-part. Which is <laughs> it looks like it has to be. So yeah. much more to say about these movies. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Which takes us to the Arkansas um, for for last episode, which was Michael Rappaport to Adam Driver. Yes. And we have a, we have a few responses. Um, I'll start off because I always forget to play it. Utah Smith as obviously sent a audio file which i will play now michael rappenpaw is in six day with arnold schwarzenegger who's in expendables three with harrison ford who's in one of the newest star wars with adam driver boom <laughs> and obviously he gets an extra step added because he didn't say david well <laughs> david well <laughs> <laughs> so that's a three-stepper. Um, Max says Michael Rappaport was in True Romance with uh, Valerie Gilbert, who is in Heat with Alison Pacino, <laughs> who is in House of Gucci with Adam Driver or Mini Driver. Who knows? Um, so that's three. That's two three-steppers. Lazo says hi. Given I picture Michael Rappaport is in every '90s film, I feel I should have done better. But here's a three-stepper for you. Michael Rappaport was in True Romance with Brad Pitt who is in Ocean's Eleven with Matt Damon, who is in The Last Duel with Adam Driver. Is that that French period film? Uh, It might be partially set in France, but yeah, it's a cool film, Last Duel. I uh, feel like you watched that. Yeah, you definitely did watch that. It's very cool. It's like a Rashomon-type thing. So what was your... your Mine was a three-stepper, alas, as well. Three-steppers all round this week. I know, I know. Michael Rappaport, he was in Copland with Robert De Niro, who's in The Good Shepherd with Matt Damon, who's in The Last Duel with Adam Driver. Oh, nice. Okay. So, yeah, this is a three-stepper. I wonder if there is a two-stepper out there. It feels like there should be, because, Mm. mm, I don't know, they are slightly different generations. but uh, And Michael Rappaport, I mean, he's not... The thing is, I was trying to think of like you need, you need you always go for an ensemble cast, don't you? And Copland was the only one I could think of. Just just uh, just rem- <clears throat> just remind me, just remind me again. I'm mean, just trying to get his acting range just straightened out of my head. Um, what kind of character does he play in Copland? <laughs> He's actually uh, a 
British professor speaking <laughs> really clipped English uh, accent. He's not sort of a fast-talking nerd. No, come on. Yeah. These guys got... I do, you wouldn't be able to detect a New York Same. accent on here. Or is it New Jersey? I don't know. Same thing. Anyway, we've got to think... So we've got to think about what the next Dark and Star is going to be. Yeah, I've got it. It's Clive Turner to Matt Salinger. That's <laughs> probably the hardest one. The hardest. Literally impossible. Um, um, well, I think w- one of them should be Matthew Broderick. <laughs> yeah, that's that's quite nice because yeah, he's a. I mean, he's he's such a quiet screen presence. Just a mm. quiet cinematic presence, isn't he, Matt Broderick? Yeah. Um, he's fantastic in election. Um, so so good. So you've got Matthew Broderick. Um. <laughs> To, I'm just trying to think of Matthew Broderick. To Michael Keaton. Ooh, that should be possible, surely. I just like. I'd really like. I feel like Michael Keaton is someone I need to watch Multiplicity again. Yeah, I, do, I feel like I, I don't need to watch My Life again. I need to watch Desperate Measures again. He's one of those actors who does elevate films, regardless of the the film itself. Yeah. Sort of thing. yeah. Again, he's uh, the best the best thing about the other guys. He's the best thing about the new Flash film. He's the best Batman. Yeah, I yeah. just fancy him. He's in the he's in the bar. Oh yeah, totally. Even if he's just a picture on a framed black picture on the bar itself, so when people are ordering drinks, they can and they're waiting for the cocktail to be made, the inevitable whiskey sour, they can just look at the picture of him and just just think, what a man! I know, what especially a man. you know the picture would be him slightly frowning and also slightly pouting, uh, just to get that perfect Batman look, <laughs> and possibly without any product on his hair. <laughs> uh, by the way, there's a scene in the in the, the Flash film where a version of Bruce Wayne gets out of a car at the end. Bearing in mind that Bruce Wayne is a modern-day multi-billionaire. And the shot you see first is his feet. And he's coming out of a limo. And he's wearing those... You know, I don't know what they... There's obviously a word for them. Those shoes that people used to wear at the school in the 90s. Where there's like a there's like a tongue, they like slip ons with a tongue. You know, they look like they cost about fifteen quid in, in <laughs> yeah. shoe zone. And they you know they just smell of plastic. And he just I just thought, why are you wearing those shoes? There's so many shoes in the world. And you're wearing those. Of all even, the shoes in the world. They're not they're not high tech silver shadows. They're not no. cowboy boots. They're not kickers with a They're not kickers stuff. with a green and red tag. <laughs> um there's one other thing. So Matthew, the new Arkansas is Matthew Broderick to Michael Keaton, and it was a draw between you and the audience, which brings it to nil nil. But <laughs> just one reset of our, everything. One of our listeners has come back with an Uber Mega Turbo Ultra <gasps> Arkansas. You know, um, this is Ben. Do you remember that we did the cast, male cast of Frasier, and oh, yeah. my brother and I came with like an eleven step, and we managed to do it. Well. Ben has come up with a one-stepper, the first one-stepper in Arkansas history. <laughs> the male cast members of Frasier are all in Mickey Mouse's 60th birthday playing the Cheers characters. Boom. 
Christ, I'm amazed I remember that. An American friend had it on tape when we were kids. Although technically, it's a TV movie special, not a movie, so probably doesn't count. But it's it's a, it's a movie. It's a TV movie. I, we've reviewed TV movies. Yeah, before. there it is. Mm-hmm. The first ever one stepper. Wow. And it's, I never. And it's an, an we weren't sure what would happen when there was a one step. We thought maybe the just disrupt the space time continuum or the universe would implode or something. But looks like we were right. So the new, yeah, the new work is Matthew Broderick to Michael Keaton. Congratulations to Ben on the Uber Mega Turbo Ultra Arkansas One Stepper, which is quite impressive. And um, anything else you want to say, Rupert? Or are we just going to bleed this into a two-parter and carry on with the worst films ever made, part two? We need to, yeah, we will continue to learn the lessons from the worst films ever made next time um, and talk about some more cult classic movies. Yeah, and and if uh, if which you may not have held up over the years, <laughs> if, if you were. Uh, He's talking about the entire Kevin Smith over there up until Red State. Um, if you if you want to message us about the worst films ever made in your eyes or any comments, it's the men who men who talk at outlook.com. The men who talk at outlook.com, not Gmail, as we both thought. <laughs> as we may have been podcast. saying for the past three years. <laughs> <laughs> they never respond to any of my emails it's weird uh, I'm really so, unpopular so we love you all and Rupert any final words for the audience uh, I know other than love will save us from the atomic bomb hey it's Tia Carrere and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert party on guys party on guys